Well, good morning once again. Please turn with me in your copy of Scripture to Acts chapter 2. Peter has just finished the witnessing part of his sermon, that is, who Christ is and what he's done, the indicatives of the gospel, you might say, and then he allows for a response in light of the indicatives, in light of what he has declared about Christ and declared what the multitude has done in crucifying him. And he's going to give his own two imperatives. Starting in verse 37, this is what we read. Now when they heard this, that is to say, when they heard that they just crucified the Messiah who came for them, who is now risen and ascended and exalted, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to Himself. And with many other words, He bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized. And they were added that day about 3,000 souls. It's the word of the Lord. The main point is not going to be a tattoo for anybody. But it's going to stay up there long enough. That is the forgiveness of sin and the gift of the Holy Spirit belong to all who in light of their sin... Believe in Christ and respond with repentance and baptism. Forgiveness of sin and the gift of the Holy Spirit belong to all who in light of their sin believe in Christ and respond with repentance and baptism. You know, um, I'm a huge fan of football, as many of you are aware and sad about. But um, there is a show that comes on before college football on college football is on Saturday uh, in the in in the fall, just to be clear. And um, and there's a show that comes on before college football called College Game Day, where you kind of have the analysts talk about the games and break them down and all the rest of it. And one of those segments is you had one job, and it's a very funny segment if you if you've seen it, where. Uh, you know, they are showing even from different sports, not just football, people who are just kind of like had to do one simple thing, just one thing, like you had one job and nevertheless, they dropped the ball. Sometimes, in many cases, literally <laughs> uh, in, in their context, but in other cases, just like you only had to do this one thing and you blew it. And here's the thing, that's what these people, this multitude, has just been told. You know what, your job, if you're a Jew, you have one job. 
at this point in redemptive history. Faithfully await the Messiah. Faithfully await the Christ who is coming to save you. And Peter just got done telling him, He came for you. And you killed Him. You had one job. That's what they've just been told. And so they are cut to the heart. They are, the word here is communicate something like they're stunned, they're alarmed, they're, their consciences are pricked. They have deep conviction in light of what they've done. And they ask this very important question. And the question is very key. The question is, what shall we do? What shall we do? What shall we do? And we have to put ourselves in their shoes. What would they do? There wasn't going to go be a cleansing through the Levitical priesthood that pointed forward to Christ that they just killed. That wasn't it. In the Old Testament, exile is the only, uh, exile is the only solution for corporate high-handed sin. But they're already under Roman dominion. That's why in the words of uh, 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 Simeon in Luke 2, they're waiting for the consolation of Israel. Okay? They understood themselves to be physically there, but still in exile in a sense, right? So what was there? What can we do? What hope is there? If you're a Jew in this moment, you don't have the theological architecture to fix this problem. You're sunk. I cannot communicate to you how done you are in this moment if you're a Jew. And so that's where they just say, what do we even do? It's very, under, very important to understand how broad and, and generic this question is because it will affect the way you read the rest of the passage. In other words, we might read the rest of the passage differently if they had asked, what should we do to achieve forgiveness? That's not what they asked. How can we be regenerated? That's not what they asked. How does one go about receiving the Holy Spirit? That's not what they asked either. They don't ask those questions. They don't even have categories, really, in one sense, for those questions in light of what has happened. There isn't any even reason to think that they thought the Holy Spirit was for them at all. Now, we know that on this side of the story, but they didn't in that moment. Why would they have any reason to think that the Holy Spirit that they saw out was, was for them? They crucified the Messiah. These people over here embraced the Messiah. Maybe the Holy Spirit is for the Messiah embracers, and these other folks... What do we do? And so we cannot let Peter's practical exhortation to a general question about how to respond to Christ in light of sin be understood as some kind of fine-tooth theological blueprint for our systematic theology. Instead, what follow, in what follows, Peter is simply saying, you should do this in answer to your general question about what you should do without any mention of any kind of theological possibilities of well, what happens if you don't do one or more of these items or whatever the case is. That's just not there. No one who was asking this question generally, genuinely, excuse me, was, was also asking, well, what if I don't want to do like one of those things? Can we do two of them, but not one of them? It's like I believe, I repent, but I repent. No, that's not it. He's giving a general response to a general question. They wanted to know what they should do and they ask that even though they have no idea what to expect as a result. Okay? 
They have no idea what to respect. They don't know what's possible for them after what they've done. What shall we do? What do we even do? That's the idea. And so in response, Peter says, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. He gives two imperatives, both of which we would expect, because they are perfectly in line with Jesus' words in the Great Commission. The first is repent. Repent is the first word of Jesus' public ministry. That's the first word out of his mouth. Repent, for the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, and it's the first element in becoming a disciple, making disciples. You are met, metanoia, this turning, repenting is turning from something. Okay? And that is what he says to the disciples. You need to make disciples of all nations. You're going to cause them to, like you put down your you put down your nets and followed me, and I made you fishers of men. You're going to call people to make, you're going to make disciples. People are going to repent. They're going to follow me. And the second is to be baptized, baptizing them in the name of the Holy Spirit. Jesus promised this. He said, this is what we should do. This is the next fundamental step, is to be baptized and receive the sign of the new covenant. Baptism is in the name of Jesus Christ. It is for the forgiveness of sins. Now, we're going to circle back to this in application, but I'll go ahead and just say right now, for someone wondering, like, oh, what do you, what do you, what do, you do with that? The phrase forgiveness of sins here is simply not going to favor any particular view of baptism. It's just grammatically ambiguous. It could mean baptism that actually secures forgiveness of sins, like if you were here in our Sunday school class, you know, the kind of like a baptismal regeneration kind of view. Grammatically, that's possible. Just as possibly grammatically is the baptism that's simply associated with the forgiveness of sins. Also possible is baptism because of forgiveness of sin. So for example, in Matthew 3.11, you get the same construction here where John the Baptist says, I baptize you with water for repentance. He didn't baptize people in order to get repentance, right? He baptized people on the basis of repentance. So I would suggest in light of the sermon that they just heard, that that kind of causal relationship is the most plausible, that the baptism is on account of the forgiveness of sins. Not something that magically affects uh, or sacramentally affects the forgiveness of sins. And so Peter moves from these imperatives. But let me just say, if he had stopped there, my guess is everyone would have cheered. There is forgiveness for what we've done. Like, that's enough if you're a Jew in that moment. Whew! There's hope. But he goes on. He goes on. Repent and be baptized. Every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ, which means that who Jesus Christ is, what he's done is baked into this repentance. It's not repenting from abstract nothing and to turning to abstract nothing. It's to Christ as he's just been presented. Repent and be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins and, it doesn't say then, does it say then in your copy? It doesn't say then. It says and, in conjunction with that, you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. You will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. You see, see all this multitude who has received the Holy Spirit, all these things that you're hearing? Those who have followed the Christ, the Messiah to His death, and have been here since kind of the beginning for Him, many of us, right? 
We've got the Holy Spirit, but guess what? You, who crucified Christ, can get the exact same Spirit. Now that is like straight up gospel gratuitous grace there. Straight up incredible grace. If you're a Jew hearing this again, think of the weight that that just releases at these words. We're guilty for crucifying the Messiah. We are done. What on earth can we do? Not only can you be forgiven, but you can receive the same spirit that everyone else has received. So if you're in the multitude here, I'm suggesting this is like this is too good to be true. But but it doesn't stop there. There's more. There's more. The promise in 39. For you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, for the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Now the Jews would have heard what Peter was saying from a covenantal perspective. What about my children? What about my children? That's why we read Genesis 17. Your offspring and their offspring after them. The sign and promise was for Abraham, okay? And if you're a Jew, you're asking, well, is this something that is available to them? Is this something that is available to them? And not only does Peter say that the promise is available to them, but in fact, in fulfillment of what God told Abraham that it would be available to those who are far off. More broadly, it would be available to everyone the Lord called to Himself. Now at this moment, and we see this as Acts unfolds, it's not clear that Peter is consciously aware that this will include Gentiles. Because when Gentiles get the Holy Spirit, it's it's kind of a surprise. Okay, We'll get there, we're not there, we will. He's most likely thinking in this moment, and probably everyone understood, you know, Jews who are far off. This is his part of the promises. Jews who are far off are going to be, be included here. The Lord calls people to himself, and then they, in the spirit of Joel 2.32, that's quoted uh, uh, right there in 2.21, they call on the name of the Lord. Now, our very dear and very solid Presbyterian brothers and sisters believe that this is the New Testament equivalent of Genesis 17.7. Genesis 17.7 is the you and your offspring of the Old Testament. Acts 2.39 is the you and your offspring of the New Testament. And and that's why uh, they baptize infants. Because just as you were born into the Old Covenant, and it was a mixed community of people who were faithful and faithless, so too in the New Covenant, you can be born of, to steal Jeffrey Bromley's phrase, Christian descent. You receive the sign of the covenant because you are of Christian descent. You are born into a Christian family, which means at least one spouse, one parent, uh, 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 rather, is a Christian. Let me just say, while a comprehensive critique of infant baptism is far outside the scope of what we're doing here, and this isn't a theology lecture, it is important to mention a couple things so we understand what he is doing, what Peter is doing here. First here, the promise that he mentions is not the promise of automatic covenant inclusion, okay? The promise is the Holy Spirit. That's the promise, Okay, he's already clarified this in his speech with his quotation of Joel. It is the fulfillment of what was promised in Joel. Furthermore, 
It is the promised Holy Spirit that Jesus receives and pours out in Acts 2.32. Just look back a couple of verses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He has poured out this. The promise. It is in Acts 1.4 where Jesus orders them to not depart from Jerusalem until they had received the promise of the Father, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And it is in Luke 24.49 that he says Jesus is sending, he's going to send the promise of the Father upon them and to stay in the city until they are clothed with power from on high. The promise, the promise, the promise, the promise, Acts, Luke, the promise is explicitly the Holy Spirit. It is not a procedural principle of covenant inclusion. So the promise being for you and your children is saying, hey, this phenomena that you're seeing, I've told you to repent and be baptized, and you receive the forgiveness of sins of the Holy Spirit. This isn't just for you. Your children can also do this. They can also repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of sins. It's not something that is just for you. The promise is for you and for your children. However, second point, those who claim automatic covenant inclusion here, they do struggle a little bit with the remaining part of the verse. And they just kind of stop the verse right there, kind of put a period. But what about automatic covenant inclusion for those who are far off? It's a, the promise equally applies to them. You, your children, and all who are far off. So does everyone who's far off automatically get covenant inclusion? If the answer is no, then why would children automatically get covenant inclusion? The promise applies equally to you, your children, and all who are far off. And finally, such an understanding finds tension with verse 41. Just look down there for a second. Who was, who was actually baptized? Verse 41, so those who received his word were baptized. Those who received the word that they heard were baptized, not people and kids back in their house. Okay, And so we, here's what we are left with. We are left with this glorious promise of the Holy Spirit of God resulting in a knowledge that at that time a Jew had, no, I mean, to know God in the way Jeremiah 31 discusses, where everyone knows God from the least to the greatest, and everyone in this covenant calls upon the name of the Lord and knows Him, and they don't have to teach one another saying, Know the Lord, because they will all know this is a level of intimacy with God and a level of blessing that, particularly in light of having just crucified the Messiah. It wouldn't, you wouldn't even be able to process it. They would not have been able to process it. This is just... And, and, and I have to imagine, caveats about the sovereignty of God aside, that that's why there were 3,000 people added that day. 3,000. They started with 120 in the morning. The church was 3,120 and change at the end of the day. Whoa! That's a lot because it's good news. Because this is good, good news. So then Luke summarizes, in a sense, Peter's sermon. And he does what we already knew. He kind of tells us this, this account is a massive abbreviation of what was said here. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. Notice Peter's sermon includes the indicatives indicating reality. Here's a reality. Here's Jesus is. Here's a second reality. Here's who you are. 
here's what you've done. You're guilty for this, indicatives. And then he gives the imperatives. Therefore, here's what you should do. He gives witness, and then he gives exhortation. That's kind of a summary of his approach here. Now, let me just say, it doesn't really make a huge... I don't think it is a, is a huge deal, but the ESV, you have to remember, is an RSV knockoff, Okay which is fine. It's fine translation. But they just preserve the save yourselves. That word can be either reflexive in the Greek or it can be passive. Um, and so you, you could say save yourselves or be saved from this crooked generation. This is something that God does. I would suggest to you, the, uh, many, many other translations have be saved. ESV simply does not. But that's okay. I think it's a better understanding because God is the one who calls in verse 39 and God is the one who adds in verse 41. So it sort of seems like he's the active participant here. Okay? And it's, it's not like people are, are saving themselves. That's what they realize they couldn't do. That's why they ask, what shall we do? Okay? So it's God is saving. Be saved from this crooked Generation, it would be remembered as a generation, certainly, who crucified the Messiah. And by the calling and grace of God, what happened? So those who again, once more, received his word were baptized. And they were added that day about 3,000 souls. 3,000 people who received the word were baptized. And in the providence of God, there they are in Jerusalem. That have all these big pools. That have all these big pools for ceremonial washing. Uh, and that could have accomplished all of these things. Particularly the pool of Bethesda and Siloam. They're these huge pools. And in fact, people who were there for Pentecost would have entered into the pools before they went into uh, uh, the, the, uh, the temple courts. Anyways, so this isn't some kind of... Some people are like, well, huh, 3,000 baptisms? Yeah, that, that would not have been a problem. Presumably the apostles were baptizing. probably an all-day affair. But there was certainly enough space for it in the providence of God. God gives a command, and then He gives the tub. You know, it's right there. It's right there. So that it can be obeyed. And so with that, we get the formal end of the beginning of the church. The formal end. Day one. Something like that. Holy Spirit falls. 120. That day, by the end of that day, they were added about 3,000 folks. What happens next? This is revolutionary. This is the fulfillment of the promises. This is a new covenant. What will change? What what will the challenges be? How will the Gentiles fit in? How many Jewish customs are they going to try to keep going along with? Well, you have to come back next time to hear the next part of the story. You have to come back next time to hear the next part of the story. The primary response to this passage is another softball application for the expositor. Me. Repent. And be baptized. Respond to Christ. Maybe you're someone who's never repented. You've never turned away from sin and to Christ. Or maybe you've turned away from one kind of sin only to replace it with another kind of sin that looks better, you know, but it's not actually turning to Christ. All right? 
Repent. Have you repented of sin? And maybe the, maybe you're in the category of people who have repented of your sin, but you've just never been baptized. You've never taken that fundamental next step of obedience. Why? That's my question to you. If you haven't done that, if you're someone who's repented and you say, well, yes, I'm a Christian. I believe the gospel. I'm following Jesus. One says, oh, yeah, surely you've been baptized, right? No, I haven't. Why not? Why, why would you not be baptized in obedience to the with the Lord Jesus Christ. The time is now. The time is now. Why? Because forgiveness of sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit belong to all who in light of their sin believe in Christ and respond with repentance and baptism. That is the main application of this passage. Just like last time and the time before that, however, there is a secondary kind of application, you might say, that is putting some theological tools in your tool belt as you come to the Scripture. Interpretive tools, theological frameworks, and I want to just touch on two. I want to touch on two that I think will be very, very helpful as you read the New Testament. The first is understanding the new covenant imperatives and blessings as a package deal. In the New Testament, in the first century, repentance, belief or faith, same word, forgiveness of sins, receiving the Holy Spirit, water, baptism, they were all part of just one big package. Okay? We have to be, there, there was no one, there were no Christians walking around unbaptized in the first century. It just wasn't a thing. Was not a thing. We have to be very careful, as I mentioned earlier, of trying to read our systematic theology off of verses like Acts 2.38 and, and pretend that in response to this general question, Peter has given us this precise order or cause-effect relationship. Instead, Peter is simply saying, and what he's implying, is that an unbaptized Christian was not a possibility. Why? Because Jesus command, commanded people to repent and be baptized. I mean, just think about this. In the first century, you hear this message. Yes, I want to follow Jesus and turn from my sin. There is forgiveness for you. Be baptized. Oh, I don't want to do that. though. What? That's not a thing. There's no one who was around there saying that. I want to follow Jesus. Let's take the first fundamental step of obedience in doing that. Actually, I don't want to do that. Everyone was baptized. In fact, in the first century, many times, we're going to see in Acts, is on the exact same day. There wasn't this long delay. It was all a package deal. It was all a package deal. Now, early on in church history, that disappeared very quickly. For better or for worse, maybe some of both, it disappeared as church leaders tried to guard the gospel from heresy and those who were simply trying to put a Christian spin on other religions and mystery religions and all the rest of it. And so what happened was before you were baptized, there was a multiple year process of discipleship and instruction and catechesis to make sure that these people knew what they were getting into. And it's only at that time where practical questions like, wait a second. What if I die the you know halfway through catechesis and I didn't get baptized? Then what? Before this separation, it just wasn't a thing. You believed, you were baptized, you received the Spirit, you received the forgiveness of sins. It was all right there. All right there. 
Baptism is obviously then very closely associated with forgiveness, repentance, a belief, receiving the Holy Spirit. Let me give you an illustration that I think is really helpful here from a New Testament scholar, Bob Stein. He, he's kind of reflecting on this reality in the New Testament. And he thinks of us, uh, he wants us to, to think of asking someone uh, when they got married. We've got multiple folks in here about to be married. Well, suppose, you know, a couple of years down the road, you're asking them, yeah, when did you get married? And they said, well, you know, it was on my wedding day I got married. Oh, you got married on, okay, the wedding day is when you got married. Great. And you ask them the next day, when did you get married? They're like, well, we, yeah, when we exchanged vows. That was when we exchanged vows. That's when we got married. We exchanged vows on this date. Oh, okay, you exchanged vows. Well, no, it was actually when we exchanged rings. That's what happened when we exchanged rings because the ring, hey, the ring right here, this is the sign. And what's this thing? This represents, you know, forever in the covenant sign. And here it is. It was when we exchanged rings. You know what? Then the third day, well, you know, when we were married is when the preacher pronounces man and wife. You know, now I present to you. Here we are, man and wife. I pronounce you man and wife. Kiss the bride. All right, face. Let's get out of here and go to the reception. All right. No, you know, when we got married, it was the marriage night. It was the night of the marriage. So Genesis 2.24, leave and cleave. They became united. They became one flesh. That's when we got married. Now imagine the person saying, wait a second, I just asked you a question you gave me five different answers. Which one is it? So, in a sense, all of them are right. Unless you are asking some very fine-toothed question that no one was asking in this context, and therefore no one was trying to answer in this context. Okay? Unless you are asking a very fine-toothed question, if you have one of those, you can assume the rest of them. They all just come together. That's how they can be spoken of. Let me give you one more example. Similarly, someone says to some man who obviously does not want to commit, hey, you need to put a ring on it. No, you better put a ring on it. Well, everyone understands what that means. It's one element of the whatever, four or five that I just said. But what does it do? It, in one sense, represents all of the other ones. So I can speak of putting a ring on it as though I'm saying you need to get you need to marry this woman with all the other elements involved. It's and no one is confused that I that I can't, you know, listen to this person if I, you know, I just can't afford a ring. They're like, no, of course you can't. Of course you can marry this person if you can't afford a ring. Oh, no, but you said I had to put a ring on it. Yes, I get it. But, okay? So there's certain parts of the process. Well, no, not certain parts of the process. All of them come together as a package, and you can refer to all of them even just by referring to one. I can talk about all those other things by referring to putting a ring on it, which is just one of the elements in the group. Does that make sense? Yes? Someone doesn't make sense. That's okay. Come talk to me later. So why it sounds odd to us because of our historical location and some of the theological controversies that we are in, um, someone very well in the first century might have those answers. When were you saved? When I repented. Well, when were you saved? When I believed. Well, when you saved? Well, when I was baptized. When, I, when were you saved? When I received the Holy Spirit. Because you, if you don't have... One of them, you don't have the rest of them. And if you have one of them, it's assumed you have the rest of them. Okay? That's why you can get to critical gospel passages in the New Testament and elements are missing that you would probably put in your gospel presentation. For example, Romans 10, 9. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, believe in your heart that God raised from the dead, you'll be saved. Where is repentance? Oh, 
Repentance didn't make it into Paul's gospel presentation. What's going on? John 3.16. John 3.16 doesn't even mention the resurrection. Okay? It just mentioned, and the only, and the only uh, act, the, the verb that it has is believe. Whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. You're like, oh, but you've got to have repentance with that. Where's the Holy Spirit? Where are all the other things? I could uh, multiply examples here. But my point is, and I did a, if you're interested in this phenomenon in the New Testament, I did an entire Sunday school on it. You can go back and look. This is not the time for it. But the idea is, it is simply assumed that when you have one element, you have the rest. And if you lack one element, you don't have any of them. Okay? And so they can be talked of as one element representing the rest of them, which moves into the second tool, second phenomenon here. That there is a pattern in Scripture of speaking of signs and, and symbols of certain things as being the things they symbolize, or as actually doing the things that they symbolize. So, and we see this with baptism for the forgiveness of sins. You heard one example in Genesis 7, uh, 17.10. This is my covenant. Okay, whoa, we've got an identity statement, it sounds like, right? What is the covenant that he's making with Abraham? The covenant is, every male among you shall be circumcised. That's what it says. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and your offspring and after you. This is my covenant. Every male among you shall be circumcised. Now imagine you say, whoa, hold on, wait a second. Wait a second. Circumcision is the sign of the covenant. The covenant is the relationship. And the covenant, we got a ceremony and a burning fire pot and all that. And the covenant is this contract that God partners with his people in a way that, okay, but you know what it says here? It says, this is the covenant. And then it says circumcision. It's using the sign to refer to, it's using it as the thing itself. Okay? This is my covenant, the sign. And we think, well, hold on, that just seems odd. It's the sign of the covenant. But it's comfortable. He's, but, but the author is comfortable, presumably Moses, speaking of it in that way, as though it's the actual covenant. Okay, let me give you another example from Luke 22, 20. This is Jesus at the Last Supper after the bread, and likewise the cup he took after they had eaten, saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. It is the new covenant. So, well, hold on, wait a second. This is the new covenant include a little bit more than that. I mean, we understand the role of blood, and but you're saying the cup that's poured out is the new covenant. Yep, that's exactly what he's saying. He's saying that this element here can be spoken of as if it's the new covenant itself. Still, another example is just one chapter over in Acts. You could probably just look over there at Acts 3.16. You have a lame beggar has healed, and then we read this. And his name has made this man strong. The name of Jesus. Okay? And he puts the parenthesis in there. His name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong whom you see and know. So in this case, he's content to say his name has made this man strong when his name, referring to Jesus, what he's actually pointing to is this man's faith in Jesus' name. Now that bothers some of us. We don't like, that's not precise enough for a lot of us, but that is, a, that is something that we see 
in Scripture. And so when we hear of something that symbolizes some other reality and it's spoken of as if it is the reality itself or that it accomplishes the reality itself, we shouldn't have this knee-jerk reaction uh, to it. Of course, the perfect example for us this morning is what we heard read in our second Scripture reading. Peter's own language. Peter's own language. The same author what does he say after talking about Christ suffered once for sins and to get the spirit in prison passage, which I'm glad I'm not preaching today. You have, you know, the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. And then what does he say in verse 21? Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. It's like, oh, look at that. So if you stop the sentence there, it's like, oh no, what are we going to do with that? Baptism saves you. Oh, not as a removal of dirt from the flesh, meaning it's not the actual getting wet. It's not the, 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 the water itself. It's not the physical act itself. How does it save? It saves as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Okay? Again, the symbol spoken of as if it's the thing that's doing the thing. Baptism saves you. And then there is a very... It's made extremely clear, lest there is misunderstanding, that baptism saves how? Just like the name healed this man. Oh, it was his faith in the name. Oh, okay. So baptism saves, what does that mean? Oh, because what, it, what, it's, what he's saying is it saves insofar as baptism represents an appeal of a good conscience uh, uh, before God through the res resurrection of Jesus Christ. I've repented and believed in my sin. I've trusted in a resurrected Savior. And so in that sense, baptism saves. Absolutely. That makes a lot of us nervous. But listen, it's the language of Scripture, and, and, and I understand that we have good reason for fearing being misunderstood in our cultural climate and the little internecine debates that we, we get into about the role of baptism. But the idea is the Scripture is fine with talking about the washing of regeneration and the baptism for this. And people don't need to have this knee-jerk reaction of every, every single time you see the word baptism. It has to be a spirit baptism or it has to be this. Even if it may be, that it may very well be the case. But baptism in the grand scheme of salvation plays a role. To be clear, when I say salvation, I mean the whole thing from called out of darkness to resurrection. Baptism is supposed to be somewhere on that timeline in obedience to Jesus Christ. It is expected to be, and in the first century, and in the context of these documents, of course the first century, they were all spoken of, of together. One implied the rest, and symbols can be spoken of as if they actually are the things or accomplish the things that they signify. My hope is in understanding those two paradigms, it's going to help you listen to Scripture a little bit more freely, but also a little bit more accurately. So in summary then, Peter has looked at a crowd of hopeless people, and he has given them the ultimate gospel hope on the heels of the worst despair, perhaps since Genesis 3. Genesis 3.14 probably the most despairing moment, you know, and then you get 15, this gospel, this seed's coming. But here, right here, the seed comes, but you killed him. And then on the heels of that, you get gospel, you get grace, you get everything that these people over here who didn't murder Jesus got. Why? Because God is making his name great.
And God delights in making his gospel great. And God delights in forgiving sin and glorifying himself in the process. And so the call is to repent, to be baptized, to receive the forgiveness of sins so that we can enjoy the gift and the power of the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Father, what a gospel. What privilege. What power. What hope. Lord, we're thankful for symbols that communicate and are not just empty tasks. But as you have appointed them, they are meaningful indicators, beacons, means of grace, signs of covenant. So we pray that you would Help us to have an elevated role of all of these things, including baptism and what it is. The beauty represented by it, death to sin, living a resurrected life. And we pray that we would give us your grace and your spirit to live in that power. In Christ.